Hello and welcome to Mimi UU. I'm Mimi Nicklin, the host of the show. This podcast is anonymous and it's audio only without names to protect from unconscious bias or judgment and to allow true empathy to grow. The goal of the show is to share diverse stories from around the world by giving people a platform to share openly so that other people like you can understand diverse realities from around the globe. We exist to create empathy and not just talk about it. Welcome to Me, Me, You, You. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Me, Me, You, You. There are some stories that come across your path, and it's almost like they were meant to find you. They were meant to be told to the world. Today, right now, right here. This is one of those stories, and my guest today has explained to me that she wasn't ready to tell this tale until this very moment. It's a story of two parts, and I encourage you to listen to the end, because just when you think you know where it's going, something entirely changes. But before we carry on and hear from our guest today, I always start by just reminding my guest that this is an anonymous show first, and that their identity will be 100% confidential unless they choose to share it otherwise. Are you happy with this agreement today? Oh yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, welcome to the show and thank you for writing to me and expressing interest in joining us on Mimi UU. Let's start at the beginning of this journey for you. Tell me, where does it begin and why did you want to come on the show and share this with the world today? So I think uh, this year, rather this month is very special uh, because it marks, uh, it's not only when I turned 40, but it's also uh, five years to when I had my brain tumor surgery. And, and while a lot's happened in between, I don't know, you know, there's some, some numbers or some occasions that really prompt you uh, to A, want to share them uh, and B, also just want to talk about it, you know. Um, I'll start from the top. Uh, so I was uh, just before my 35th birthday, uh, I gave birth to my baby boy, my beautiful baby boy. And two days after he was born, doctors diagnosed me with a brain tumor. A brain tumor diagnosis is complicated and, uh, you know, difficult in itself. But being delivered this diagnosis when you're two days postpartum, <laughs> the hormones kind of really, really add up to the entire experience, you know. Oh, I can't. Uh, imagine and tell me how did they diagnose you two days after giving birth what what was the process of of arriving at that diagnosis so actually the the story for that begins a few months earlier uh my right eye had started drooping uh to the point where uh my vision was being impacted uh and i, I was working full-time 
and I was working so hard uh, and you know I was cognizant of the fact that I'm about to go on leave for six months so I was very keen on finishing up everything before I went off so you know it was for me it was just a series like the last month when the eyes started drooping it was just a series of in my view uh, slight complications of uh the pregnancy because the pregnancy in itself was quite tough for me uh i had massive back issues uh i had massive acidity issues to the point where i was only eating one meal a day uh you know a- and then you know the right side of my face had gone numb completely numb so from the hairline on the top to my chin the right side with the nose in the middle the right side i could not feel anything and for me, this was, okay, just one more thing, because I had had this, you know, kind of a, a side effect when I had had my firstborn also. But this went away after a couple of months of her birth. So I said, okay, you know, a nerve's being pressed, you know, let's get on with it, let's push through. Uh, so for me, the eye drooping was just another side effect, you know. Maybe, you know, one of my eye nerves was getting... Uh, you know, pressed, or maybe I had had conjunctivitis, or this had been another side effect of that. Uh, so when I went in to deliver, uh, my eye was drooping, and my gynecologist asked me, she like, what's up with your eye? Because, you know, I, I had my face scrunched up to close the eyes so that, you know, I could at least see with my left eye. And she said, you know, don't do that. And she actually put a bandage on my eye. And then after delivery, uh, which was also complicated because I had uh, I had a natural birth without epidural, so you know everything just kind of added up. So it was not I was not getting any time to pause and think and reflect on the many you know changes that my body was going through. So once I delivered, my gynecologist said that look, I'm not going to discharge you until you get that eye checked out. And I said, okay, no worries, you know, have at it. So neurologist came and, you know, he checked out my eye, he made me do a few motions. And then, I mean, he didn't engage with me much. He just said, okay, he ordered an MRI for me. And I was like, great, another day I have to spend in the hospital. I just want to go home to my babies. Uh, then the next day, the doctor came back and he came back with a... Uh, a very senior uh, doctor. He's so I'm in the UAE, and this he, this gentleman he was the head of the UAE Neurological Society, and and that kind of, kind of caught my attention. And I said, okay, why is he bringing another guy? You know, and that gentleman he actually said to me, he said, you have a very unique case. May I take some pictures of you to share with my class because I I'm a, uh, I teach at the university as well, <laughs> and I said, okay, go ahead. You know. Uh, and then they actually, uh, you know, had me go through an MRI. Uh, and I remember it was like one thirty in the morning when the MRI was done and I go outside and I stand behind the doctor and he's like, he's like, well, there's good news and there's bad news. Uh, the bad news is you have a brain tumor and it's quite large and it needs to be operated on now. Uh, the good news is it's not malignant, it's benign. But, you know, because it's so big, it needs to be uh, operated on soon because it's very complex now. 
I said, okay, uh, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, we need to deal with it. Uh, and that's kind of how I, how I tackle things, you know, difficult situations. That okay, it is what it is. Let's power through, right? What's the, what's the solution? Uh, the next day, I think that was the tough part where uh, the head of neurosurgery in the hospital, he came to me and he said, nobody in UAE has the expertise to handle your case. And he suggested that I go to London or Germany. And that was a tough one because already I'm one day without my baby. The baby's gone home. I'm in the hospital. Uh, then they had injected me with a dye to do the MRI. So they told me I can't breastfeed for a couple of days until the dye kind of dissipates. Uh, then they put me on anaphylactics and uh, anti-epileptics. Uh, uh, they put me on steroids. They said, we're putting on steroids, so you have to stop breastfeeding. That is, I think, the time when it really hit me as something real. Because uh, for me, this now this is really impacting my day-to-day. Uh, I was very, very uh, keen on breastfeeding him like I had with my older one. Uh, and so then I go home with all these medicines and, you know, w- without, you know, knowing the solution that how am I going to get rid of this brain tumor that's so massive? Uh, so the next day, day four of my baby being born, uh, we go to uh, the embassy uh, to actually uh, start the process of having his uh, birth certificate registered, his you know uh, identity card made, and then the process of his passport. Uh, because if we need to travel, this ba- I'm not going anywhere without my babies, and he needs a passport to travel. My gosh, can you remember? Can you remember what it felt like to to get home and and of course you've got home to your baby so there's a wonderful joy in that but with this awareness that you have in your words a, a huge brain tumor in your head that you didn't know was there a few days ago and now you are in that position between being joyful to be back with your baby and as you said running into administration mode to potentially, you know, travel across the world. Can you remember what you felt at that time? I think I was just, I think I kind of hid behind my emotions. Uh, I just went and I cuddled my baby. That's all. That's all I remember doing. Uh, For me, like, I don't remember even how I felt, but... I remember how he smelt. No. Oh. And did did the hospital, the doctors, they've recommended you you go across the world. Are they now helping you to plan this trip to find the doctor or, or are you on your own in this process? No, they just told me uh they helped me in issuing a letter to uh when eventually I applied for a UK visa. You know, so they issued the letter saying this, you know, that this person has, you know, this condition and needs to travel, you know, immediately. 
but the rest of the entire discovery part and everything uh that's what my dad did my dad's a doctor as well and he kind of activated all of his networks uh you know to find out you know who who is the best in this field but also willing to take on my case and did you did you feel fear were you were you scared of you know in in its crudest form having your your head cut open i mean was was that were you scared about that were you anxious how, how did you feel about knowing that was going to happen to you no you know that's a really strange part like you mentioned i went into administration mode so you know for me it was about getting the visa sorted finding the doctors you know booking the appointments etc i think i didn't give myself the space or the time to feel any fear uh it, it was just something that you know i had to do so there's no space for being afraid of something that you have to do and how long did that then take you so you know we're a few days after the birth we're we're in the passport office you're getting his passport his identity cards your dad is researching for the best surgeons that will take your case in Europe how long was it until you got on a plane oh it was two and a half months until i got onto a plane wow that was yeah that took a while because then i asked my dad to fly in uh and he came uh, to the uae and uh we even went to cleveland clinic in abu dhabi uh to meet with a doctor there uh but his approach just sounded very aggressive he wanted to like like you said cut open my skull but he wanted to do it twice in the space of 2 weeks uh so we said okay this sounds just too much you know uh and then my father he found this uh the most uh prominent doctor in this field majid sami he's an iranian german surgeon in germany uh but he was 81 uh so he was just overseeing surgeries at this point so my dad's a doctor so he's like and I'm his only daughter so he's like you know nothing like that for my daughter and then we found somebody in uh, london and uh they actually they were they were really uh they were really amazing i uh, i think i think that's when my first like uh interaction with the you know empathetic people began other than my parents and my immediate family and my husband you know that's when i actually started feeling like oh, okay somebody's holding my hand amazing they accepted your case and you flew to london yeah and actually even that wasn't so straightforward like so they had to first go and present my case uh th- there is a meeting in london all the prominent doctors sit on it every wednesday and they present like you know the really complex cases and they talk about uh you know how to how to tackle it and you know what the procedure will be etc and th- then they they called me and they said okay uh there'll be two surgeons uh an ENT head specialist and a neurologist neuro- neurosurgeon who will uh you know operate on me and then the first date they gave me so my my boy bo- was born on 8th april uh and this is now we're talking about may and the first 
date they gave me was end of June. And that's when I said, okay, you know what? If this is happening end of June, uh, till now I was pumping and dumping uh, because I was really quite keen on continuing to breastfeed my baby. And at this point, I stopped my medicine. And I said, okay, <laughs> we're going to get to June when we get to June. In the meantime, I'm going to breastfeed my baby. So I stopped the medicine and I started breastfeeding him. Uh, and because I needed to do something, you know, I couldn't just sit by and watch uh, as strangers, you know, tell me how, you know, my life is going to look like and have absolutely no, uh, no role to play in it myself. Uh, so my dad said, okay, you know what, uh, better if you're going to do this, at least consult with a friend of yours who's a doctor so that, you know, because I think he realized that him explaining to me was not going to, you know, make a difference. Because I remember at one point he said to me, you know, better forget about breastfeeding, you know, you need to focus on yourself. And I remember getting so angry at that, that I walked out, I just got up and walked out of the room. Because... This was four weeks I was pumping and dumping. Uh, and I was doing like four to six times a day, you know. Uh, because this was the only thing that was in my control, you know. Yeah. So I stopped my medicine, I started breastfeeding. And then I got in touch with a friend of mine who was a neurologist in uh, Boston. And I told her my medicine and the dose I was taking. And then she told, tells me that, you know, the dose of steroids you're taking... It's so small that it wouldn't have mattered if you would have fed him anyways. Oh, no. After all that I time. Just, yes. And this makes me angrier at the hospital, you know, and the surgeon who told me to, you know, stop. Uh, but at least now I, I have something in my control. So I'm, I'm taking the medicine and I'm breastfeeding him. And uh, then they gave me another date, which was on my birthday. No way. My God. Yeah. And I uh, and I said, you know, can we just do another, like, date, please? And then, you know, they said, like, look, that either it's then the next Saturday because, you know, uh, that's the way the NHS works. Like, they could only have given me a Saturday. So I said, okay, let's do it. I'm, I'm in. Let's do it. So you get, you, you fly to London to have brain surgery on your birthday in a country that is not your own, in a city that you don't live in. How did you feel the day of that surgery? I was calm. I was joking around with an anesthetist, actually. Um, I think the only, the only part that really kind of hit me was, uh, so just before the actual surgery, I met with all of the doctors. And... I just felt like they were so empathetic, you know, uh, and and I felt like okay, now you know somebody's actually like taking me to the finish line, right? And uh, the only thing that I think was the first part that I really felt a real emotion was, I think forty-five minutes before the surgery, the surgeon comes out and he's like, "Look, we've looked at your uh, scans." you know, every which way. And the most direct way to reach your tumor is to go through your right ear canal. 
So we're going to have to go through your right ear canal and we're going to have to uh, compromise your hearing on the right side. Uh, and I said, okay, so what does that mean? And they're like, we're going to shut your right ear. You know, we're going to take fat from your body. We're going to close your right ear. And, you know, I mean, that's at the end of it, but we're going to go through the right ear canals to reach the tumor. And I think that's when the first time I actually felt uh, like real emotion. Uh, and I remember sitting with my husband there and I think I think I cried a little bit. Like, you know, and my husband's like, you know, uh, it's a small price to pay. You know, it's a small price to pay. And I turned to him so angry and I said, it's not a small price to pay. It's a very big price to pay. I'm willing to pay it, but don't minimize it, you know. And then he was like, no, no, of course you're right, you know. It's a big price to pay. Uh, <laughs> but I think uh, when I went in for the surgery, I was quite calm. Like, I said, okay, so now I know the worst that's going to come. I mean, yes, there's a 10% chance of death. Uh, there's a, another 10% chance of paralysis. Uh, but for me, I like to focus on the positive. Uh, and sometimes I tend to only focus on the positive. So for me, it was, okay, uh, we're going to get this tumor out. And then we're going to, I'm going to lose my hearing on my right side. But that's the worst. You know, for me, that was the worst case scenario. Uh, so tell me when you woke up, you opened your eyes. What was the first thing you, you thought when you were consciously back in the world? That's such a good question. I don't remember. I, I, I think I didn't have the space to do a lot of that because there were, my dad was there, my dad's brother was there in the room. Like, this is the recovery room. My husband's there. Uh, so, so I'm just, you know, I'm like happy to see them. I think I'm happy to be alive, you know. Uh, but at this point, I just want my baby. So I said, I said, where's Wali Ahmed? Uh, can you please bring him to me? I want to feed him. My gosh. It's amazing. Our mother's love is bigger than anything, right? You've just had brain surgery. And the first thing you're thinking about is, can I feed my son? Yeah. Beautiful. I want to fast track a little bit through the next few days because I know something that the listeners don't know, which is that this story is about to take a twist that no one would have imagined. You've yeah. just experienced your brain tumor. You've just had it removed. You've traveled halfway across the world. You are finally back with your son as a mum of a, of a still small baby. Something else happens next. What happened next? So we go to his pediatrician and his, you know, the pediatrician tells me, this is when he's nine months old. So this is after I've had my surgery. I've, I've gone back to the UK for radiotherapy for six weeks. I've come back with tinnitus. Tinnitus is this thing where you have this constant ringing in your ear. So my right ear now, even as you speak, like I have a level six, you know, uh, ringing constantly in my ear. I'm, you know, I power through that. I have headaches on my right side. I power through that. I find medication for that. Uh, but the really tough part is the pediatrician tells me that he hears a murmur 
Now, a mummer is an irregular heartbeat. Now, this is my nine-month-old baby. He's, like, just starting to walk, like, a little bit, like, just, you know. And I'm like, what does that mean? And he's like, uh, you need to go to a pediatric cardiologist and get this checked out. And by this time, my dad also had also flown back into the country. And I take my dad with me. And he's a cardiologist. So he's watching the echo as the doctor is doing. And I see his face change. And I'm like, what's happening? And uh, the pediatric cardiologist tells me that your baby has a congenital heart defect. And it's it's a very, very serious one. He needs to be operated on like very quickly because this is life endangering and uh, I said okay so who can do this you know and he said uh, we don't do this so this is the hospital we're at he said we don't have any you know surgeons who do this hos- uh, this surgery you can go to another uh, hospital uh, it's a kid's hospital or there's another government hospital in Abu Dhabi. I live in Dubai. So I said, okay, uh, we go to the other hospital, the kids' hospital. And it's three years old, the hospital. They're still like, you know, getting their systems in place. So then we go back to the uh, visa office to get another visa for the UK. Because this time we need to work so fast. Because my baby's life is in danger. Uh, and my, again, my dad activates his networks. He finds someone. Uh, and everything now happens in record time because this is so much more serious now. Uh, but still, things take some time. And I just requested the surgeon one thing. I said, please don't do his surgery on his birthday. I can only imagine. What did he say? What did he say when you that? So he scheduled it, I think, a few days after. It was it was a very a very invasive procedure. But just to tell you like how serious it is, they did his, they took his blood pressure just before they took him to surgery. It was one sixty by one twenty. For a baby it should be ninety by sixty. Uh, so yeah, so we got his surgery done, and my baby boy is so strong. I can't tell you that he was in the still in the neonatal ward because he's still like you know under one. And two days after his surgery, he was walking down the halls. <laughs> this is where I really saw. I experienced empathy. The nurses, the doctors, I mean, especially the nurses. I mean, they were so amazing. Uh, So we go back home to Dubai and we keep doing a checkup, right? Because we want to keep following up. And when he's a year and a half, one of the surgeons tells me uh, at the kids' hospital that, you know, we don't think the surgery was done right and they should have taken a different approach. And I'm so angry. I stopped going to that doctor. Uh, we found another really good doctor. And after three months, the this doctor concurred. And he said, actually, 
It's not that his first surgery was not correct. It's just that we only tackled one of the issues. So he had a congenital heart defect in three places. So while we tackled the most emergent one, uh, we there's another more like uh, larger part of his. So basically, his aorta is narrow in some places. It's called coaptation of the aorta. And uh, while we fixed the part that was on the the curve, the you know, the part on the main side, the converse part, that was there and it was quite large. And by this time, now we're in the middle of COVID. So there's no travel happening. Uh, even like doctor visits are quite like we have to get permissions before we can go to see the doctor. And while uh, this wasn't uh, as big an emergency as the first one, this is still a very big issue that we need to tackle. So we kind of uh, sat back. We, you know, worked on like, we just kind of uh, we bided our time really until the, you know, Hospitals opened until travel restrictions went down. And then in September 20, uh, just when literally the first flights were out of the country and going into the UK, we flew again. And this time I didn't let my parents come because my parents are like in their 60s, right? And they're at bigger risk than us. But that meant that it was so much more complicated for us because... Uh, they only allowed one parent at the hospital at one time. So I took my daddy with me because someone had to take care of my daughter. So my husband and I, we would be doing 12-hour shifts. So when one would leave, the other would, you know, come. And uh, this was an open-heart surgery. And he was two and a half then. Uh, so I had been, I was with him, uh, up till the point that he went into surgery. Uh, and then when he was, uh, still unconscious, my husband was with him in the night. So when I came, when, when I first found out that he's waking up now, I came, like, you know, I rushed to the hospital and we used to like, we had like a card that we could tap in, uh, you know, because we couldn't go up to the third floor without you know, an access tag. And my husband just, he handed me the tag and he said, don't stop in his room. Don't stop anywhere. Go straight to CCU, cardiac care unit. And I said, what happened? And he's like, listen, the nurses need you. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm freaking out. Like, why do the nurses need me? We're in a hospital for Christ's sake, you know? And I go straight and I see, I go and I see my baby boy. He is struggling. And he's like, just, he's like trying to break free. There are three nurses on top of him. Yeah. And they're like, mom, we need you, mom. Come. We have to, you know, because he was, there were, there were, at this point in time, there were six tubes coming out of him. So there was, you know, a breathing tube from his nose. There's a cannula in his hand. There are three I swear, I'm not kidding. They were half a centimeter wide. These tubes that were basically draining the fluid from his, uh, you know, his thoracic cavity, his 
his chest. And he was trying to pull them out. And God forbid, if somebody pulls, you know, these tubes out, they can bleed to death, you know. And so I just go by to his side. I hold his head in my hands and I start singing this song that I normally sing to him uh, whenever I put him to sleep. And, and he starts like quieting down, you know, he stops struggling. And then I got up to take off my jacket and then again he starts struggling. And then the nurse is like, Mom, keep singing, Mom. <laughs> and I was like, listen, whatever tubes you can take off him, just take them off. I Let me hold him. He'll be fine. So they're like, okay. So they came around and they, you know, unplugged some tubes, replugged them somewhere else. And then they just handed me my baby boy. At this point, he's not a baby anymore. He's two and a half. Uh, <laughs> I just hold him. But oh my God, but the first time I saw him, when, you know, I just, you know, for a second, like I was just, I just stood for a second looking at the number of tubes coming out of him. It was my entire journey of having brain tumor, having to go through radiotherapy, tinnitus. It seemed like a breeze compared to this moment. It was, that was really tough. That's, I couldn't, and I do like, you think, do you think he understood? I mean, I, I remember my two and a half year old, she's similar to age to, to your son today. They, two and a half year olds, they do understand, you know, they do understand what's going on to a certain extent. What did he, what did he understand of that time? Oh, so he 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 started talking very late. So he like and boys do as you know. Uh, he wasn't talking much. Like he would say strawberries. He likes strawberries. Uh, you know uh, he would ask for milk, but he wasn't expressing much. So you know, so I I, I really generally don't know like how much he understood. Uh, all I know is that, you know, he he understood when I was there and that's when he quieted down. But even in the next couple of days, I remember we were watching uh, The Secret Life of Pets on, on the TV in his room. And there's this scene where all the animals, they go down this tube. And that's when he left, he let out this belly laugh. Oh my God. Oh my God. It made my ear. I swear. <laughs> I have, a, I have a recording of that. I swear, like, I listen to it sometimes. And how did he recover from that? You have mentioned how strong he was. Um, I am assuming that after heart surgery, there's various medications he has to take, checkups he has to do. How did it go in the months that followed? You know, I quit my job at Nestle uh, before we, like, before we were going to travel. I had been there almost five years in the UAE and I quit my job so that, because, you know, as a mother, you always feel guilt, right? So I felt guilt that I couldn't breastfeed him beyond six months. I I, I, I had guilt because I wasn't there for him in his first year because I was, you know, going through my own uh, medical issues. Uh, so I, I just left my job and 
because I wanted to look after him full time. Would you believe he started going to nursery in less than a month? Wow. And he could live a normal life at that stage. He can run, he can play, he can do everything that normal sort of two and a half year old boys can do. So uh, when, when, when we met the surgeon after the surgery, uh, so his exact word to us was like, look, there's another part that's coopted that's near his stomach. I couldn't reach it. Uh, so we said, okay, what do we do now, doctor? And he's like, go home, don't meet doctors. <laughs> that was it. He said, he said just, and I was like, okay, can he, can he do this? And can, you know, he, he's like, let him do whatever he wants. So that was, I think, the, for me, that was the silver lining that, you know, there wasn't any restriction on him. Uh, but, but this is what I'm, you know, what I mean, like, you know, when, when, maybe when you and I met in Dubai and you started talking about empathy, it struck such a nerve, I tell you, because, because I, I, empathy is what got me through. You know, I, I didn't tell many people about myself in the beginning. Only my closest friends do because I, I don't want anyone's pity, you know. Uh, but my friends, my family, my parents, who they accompanied me three times to the UK. First for my surgery, then for my radiotherapy, then for my son's first surgery. I mean, if that's not love and empathy, you know, what is, you know? Mm-hmm. So... And even the way, you know, the doctors and nurses, they treated us, you know. If my maths is correct, uh, you went to the UK September 2020 for this uh, surgery, the second yeah. surgery. Today, we're in the middle of 2023. So where is your story today, three years later? How is your little boy doing? Just this weekend, uh, we went for his follow-up. Because he still needs another procedure or surgery. He's on the threshold. So the moment he crosses, or God forbid, if he crosses the threshold, uh, you know, whatever the doctors monitor, uh, then we will need to have another surgery or a procedure. I'm hoping it's just a procedure where, you know, they do a ballooning or something. But he's not out of the words, you know. But he's five. He's talking and you know, playing, he's doing karate right now. He's the most active five-year-old boy I've seen ever. He he loves swords. Uh, So nowadays he's watching, uh, you know, Ninja Turtles. So he loves, uh, I think it's Leonardo, the one with the long swords. So at any given point in time, you will see him with one sword tucked in, like, you know what, my sister-in-law got him these foam swords, like several of them. So he will have one sword tucked into, you know, the back of his shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case he needs to fight off something in the the sewers of the (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, that's where I am. Uh, For me, my, my, my... my life revolves around my kids. Uh, my successes and failures are at what stage they are. So uh, for me, I've gone back to work now just like last week. 
I I I worked in the middle also, but now I've just started another job. I feel more alive when I'm working. Uh, you know, because I feel like there's something that I'm doing for myself also. I know that there's another like hill that we have to cross with him for myself. I don't know. I haven't been to a, like a checkup in like a while, but I I do my annual MRIs because. Uh, I have to do 10 years of uh, tumor-free MRIs before I can get a, uh, you know, the hearing aid uh, that I can have. Uh, impl- it's an implant. I have a I have a hearing aid right now for the right side, uh, but I hate it. It's it's <laughs> it, it hurts my ears. Uh, this constant fear that it will fall. Uh, so I don't use it so much, but I'm really looking forward to having an implant because I feel I feel like half a person. That I think that's something that has stayed with me, like losing the hearing on my right side. You know, because if I go to a if I go to like a dinner party, I have to you know quickly go and occupy the seat where you know my right side is you know, against a wall or something so I can hear everybody on the table uh, if I'm out meeting friends, you know, or if we're standing somewhere. I position myself in a way where, you know, my left ear is towards where the conversation is happening. Uh, I think that is a part of, like, my daily life that still keeps reminding me of, you know, what I've been through. Uh, and it's a challenge that I continue to face. Uh, but, you know, maybe I'm alive. A <laughs> baby's alive. That's good. Life. Life is life is good. And these these people are magical, right? These these doctors and nurses that care for us in these times. Oh, I yeah. I have one final question for you. For people listening to this today that perhaps know somebody else in in another situation who has another medical challenge, whether it's a tumor or cancer or a sick child, how can they do better at empathizing with the people around us? When you go through these, you mentioned earlier, I didn't tell people because I didn't want pity. Tell us just a little bit of advice about how we can talk to people who are going through these types of challenges? Well, that's such a good question, maybe really. Uh, my answer to that is that acknowledge what people are going through. Don't tell them, especially if they're religious people or you're religious, don't say, oh, you know, oh, there's a better plan or, or you know, uh, God has planned this way or uh, be strong. No. Just acknowledge what they're going through. Say, you know, what you're going through is so tough. You must be feeling so overwhelmed. This is such, you know, it's so hard going through something like this. And it applies to anyone, I swear. If you, if it's someone whose parent has died, if it's someone who's going through, God forbid, cancer, or any, I mean, these are extreme, anything, you know, like someone who's going through a tough marriage, 
ओके दो एक्सपीरियंस इज स्मॉल इट्स एवरी वन हैज एंड यू नो दिस वन आई वुड टेल माई सेल्फ यू दिस हाउ आई वुड कम्फर्ट माई सेल्फ दैट यू नो एटलीस्ट यू आर लाइफ एटलीस्ट यू हैव अ लॉस्ट अ पेरेंट बिकॉज आई वुड सी पीपल अराउंड बी यू नो अ फ्रेंड ऑफ माइंड शी वॉज डाइट डोज इन बेस्ट कैंसर यू नो लाइक अ फ्रेंड ऑफ माइंड लॉस्ट अ मदर एंड देन अ फादर विद इन अयर एंड आई कीप रिमाइंडिंग माई सेल्फ लाइक लुक वैट देर पीपल हु आर सो मच वर्स ऑफ दैर यू एंड दैट्स वट आई टेल लाइक पीपल यू नो हु आर इन अ टफ सिचुएशन बट फॉर पीपल हु आर जस्ट देर टू कम्फर्ट दैन जस्ट एक्नोलेज इट say that you know you're so brave to go through something like this you know don't say like you know uh uh oh it'll get better uh don't cry about it no let them cry mm-hmm. that they're going through a really shitty time they they've earned those tears you know let them cry a bit better oh listen i think that's just the most phenomenal advice to end with and and again connects so much with what i believe sits in the heart of empathy which is as you just said you know listening and acknowledging i think often people think that to empathize is to act but that's not true to empathize is to hear and i think what you were just saying is is very similar don't don't try and fix it for me just hear me recognize me acknowledge me and that in itself can be enough and i think whether this is a serious situation whether this is a reality at work or in a relationship that acknowledgement can be so powerful so thank you for coming and and sharing an extremely long resilient journey and i think your outlook i can only speak for myself is incredibly inspiring your strength your braveness and i'm sure that many of the listeners feel the same the last question i always ask every guest is around uh remaining anonymous this is an anonymous show but some guests do choose to say their name at the end of the show the choice is entirely yours would you like to remain anonymous today no i'm okay with sharing my name go ahead my name is falak i just turned 40 this month <laughs> well happy birthday and the anniversary of your recovery and to many years of health for you and that wonderful brave little boy of yours and to everybody listening thank you for joining us and i hope that this episode like so many others inspires a little more empathy a little more often for those around us and for those that are perhaps experiencing things that you yet have not do follow us and join us again for more stories that create empathy in our world thank you for joining us today on mimi you you this episode is one in a series that has been designed to create empathy in our world if you would like to join us on the show please click on www. join mimi you you.com or follow us across social media at mimi you you show i believe that the more the world talks about empathy the more empathy the world will have and i hope that this show is the beginning 
of doing just that.